If you want to grab a Bible, we, we are going to mostly be in Haggai, but we're going to start in 2 Kings 17 very briefly. Now, last week I mentioned that we were gone between Christmas and New Year's to our son's wedding, and some people were like, oh, so we thought we'd at least share with you a picture. This is our growing family. When we, the first time anybody at Central saw our picture, there was only six of us, and now there's nine of us, and there's soon going to be ten of us, and so we're trying to grow this thing. I don't know. We're going to need bigger screens soon um, if we keep adding. But we wanted to let you know that. And also, we want to let you know, um, because they got married so far away, it didn't seem very kind to ask you to travel 1,700 miles and all of those kinds of things to come. And so, in essence, we're kind of bringing the wedding to you. So on Friday night, we do have a reception. Uh, and you'll see on the back of the bullets and all the information about that so that I don't mess that up. But we'd love to invite you and have you come as Josh and Olivia will be here, and so if you'd love to come, we'd sure love to have you. So if you could heed that information on the back there, we'd appreciate it. So, aren't they cute? <laughs> so, what shall we, you can leave that one up, the whole message. I just want to see, I'm kidding. We got to move on. I'm just glad that I was able to find a high spot to stand on to look semi-close in height to Josh instead of looking up at him. But <clears throat> That's how we decided where the picture was going to be taken. So, On to things of a little more significance, perhaps. This morning we are going to continue our series on the book of Haggai, which is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. And if you were not here last Sunday, I would encourage you to read the, the first 11 verses of Haggai 1 and, and maybe even go on to the church website and you can listen to the message. But before you do either of those, what I would sort of probably should do is I should offer you a warning, sort of the surgeon general kind of a thing, because the words God put into Haggai's mouth, the words he gave Haggai to share were strong words. To be very direct, God had a major issue with the people. Their priorities were hugely, hugely out of whack. They were not living in any way like they should have been. And so basically God calls them in, in the words, consider your ways. He wanted them to examine their lives. He wanted them to take a very good look at their lives. And I think the intended reason of that wasn't for them to go, wow, I could lose a few pounds or something. He did that to bring them to the point where they would confess their sin, where they would repent their sin, and where they would begin to live in a very different and a better life direction, that things would dramatically change. Now, the book of Haggai, just to remind you, just keep it in context, is about rebuilding the temple. But the point, really, of starting, why Haggai starts where he starts, is if the temple was going to be rebuilt, what needed to happen in their lives was some serious, profound, deep rebooting. Okay, They couldn't just keep living the way they were. Some things dramatically needed to change in their lives so that anything could happen. Nothing was going to happen if they stayed exactly where they were. Things needed to change. Now that's kind of the tie to last week. In essence, I gave you last week's sermon in a very condensed way. But I want to shift gears and, and kind of talk about this week and sort of the rest of Haggai chapter 1. And to make that shift, what I want to do is I want to ask you a question. I kind of want you to consider a few things. I'm probably asking you this a, a few different ones. Okay, but the question basically is, is what do you do when strong words are directed at you? 
How do you respond when you get strong words? Okay, I mean, what kinds of things happen in your heart, in your head, when you get that finger of accusation pointed at you? And in this case, it's not God pointing a finger of accusation at them saying, maybe this is God putting His finger in their chest and saying, this is true. Deal with that. What do you do when that happens? How do you respond? I mean, do you go defensive? And offer excuses and, and, and blame other people. Well, I'm this way because my parents potty trained me poorly. You know, do you do that? Or do you go on the offense? You know, do you push back and attack anybody who would confront you? You're going to take them down. Or do you feel guilt and shame? And do you let those just kind of eat away at your soul? Or do you just ignore the strong words and say, obviously I'm right, they're wrong, they don't have a clue what they're talking about, I'm just going to blow them off and not even pay attention. How are you going to respond? Now, the truth is, there we can respond to strong words. There's a lot of options. There's a ton of ways you could respond to strong words. But here's something I want you to consider this morning. Your response, whatever it is, Okay, however you decide to respond to strong words, whatever it is, that response is going to influence the outcome of your life. Okay, when you receive strong words, how you respond to those is going to influence things from that point on. Now you might say, whoa, 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 where are you getting that from? Why are you saying that? Well, this is why I want us to consider first thing. Why I ask you to turn to 2 Kings 17. I want us to read some verses in 2 Kings 17 and also some words in, in Jeremiah chapter 16. Okay, this kind of ties back to last week. We did sort of a, a chronological overview, but I want you to see this point. So 2 Kings chapter 17, we're going to read from verses 13 to 18 to kind of give you a sense of if how you respond makes a difference. Okay, verse 13. Yet the Lord warned, this goes back to about 722 B.C., okay? Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers. And the warnings he gave them, they went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of all His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Okay, now flipping with me, turn to Jeremiah chapter 16. Now we're going from 722 B.C. to about 586 B.C. in that realm. And Jeremiah was to deliver this message from God, verses 10 to 13. And when this people, and when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? 
What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of your every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night for you, for you, for I will show you no favor. I know, upbeat, exciting words. But here's the point. God had spoken to Israel again and again and again. He'd spoken to the people of Judah again and again and again. And their response was to ignore God. Okay, that, they heard strong words, their response was to ignore it, and the outcome that followed was this thing called exile. Kicked out of your land, removed from home, moved literally walking in 900 miles. You, you're, you're gone. That was the outcome. Their message, they didn't care. They didn't listen to God. So we need to remember your response, my response to words from God, including strong words from God will influence the outcome of our lives. It will influence everything from that point forward. Now, another thing, kind of a side thing we need to see in these verses that we just read as well, is that for most of the prophets, they were anything but successful. They stood up and said their thing, they delivered their messages, and nobody heeded it. Nobody paid attention to it. Nobody really cared. They went and paid attention to their stubborn, evil hearts. But here's the thing, and I'm going to kind of give away the whole story of the book of Haggai right now. They listened to Haggai. He told them to rebuild the temple, and guess what? The temple got rebuilt. Why? Why did the temple get rebuilt? Why did he see, why did Haggai see a different outcome? Simple truth. Better responses will produce better outcomes. So the question then becomes, how did the people in Jerusalem, when they received a message in the, at the end of August in 520 B.C., how did they respond so that something started to change in September of 520 B.C.? How did they respond so they got a better outcome? And maybe related to that question is, should you and I learn something from their response to God? Is there something about how they responded to God that maybe we should learn from so the outcome of our lives gets changed? Better responses will lead us towards better outcomes. So what's the better response? What, how do we respond better? Better response, number one, what did they do? Well, it started by they listened to God. Better response, number one, is they listened to God. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 12 with me. And by the end of this, we are all going to know how to pronounce these hard-to-pronounce names. Okay. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. 
Now I want us to back up just for a second to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. We saw last week when we looked at that verse that the words that Haggai shared were God's message. Okay, God had put words into Haggai's voice, a message for Zerubbabel, for Joshua, and also then to the people. Now that was Haggai 1.1. That was kind of the point. Here in verse 12, the idea, the words in the voice of the Lord their God is kind of underlining the same thought. God is speaking. God has something to share. That's huge for us to realize. God is speaking. Now, we need to be clear at this point in that the first response I'm suggesting, this listening to God, is more implicitly inferred in verse 12 than it is explicitly stated. Okay, but there's a reason we're talking about this. For a response to take place, when someone speaks to you, for any response to take place, the logical starting point is listening. They needed to listen to the message. Okay, God is speaking. And they needed to listen to his voice. We read verses from before the exile that says, pointed, showed up. They didn't do a really good job of listening to God. Okay, their history says we don't do a good job listening to God. And if we were to read verses from after the exile, now they're back. And beyond that, we'd realize, you know what, they still didn't listen to God. A chunk of years ago, Back when the flood wasn't in our building, but in our community, we did a series in the book of Nehemiah, which takes us into about 440 B.C., so 80 years after this. And one of the things in Nehemiah showed us, again, they weren't listening to God. They they just didn't do it. But to get a different outcome, we need to listen. Better outcomes start by listening to God. We need to understand that. Now to me, that raises, I think, for us an important implication, or maybe maybe, maybe another way to say it is a significant application to us. We need to listen to God. We need to hear His voice. And just like they had struggles in their history and their ability to listen to God, I'm going to guess that you and I might have similar struggles. We might have a hard time listening to God. Now, to be very, very clear, our listening to God isn't so much an auditory thing. It's more of a reading His Word thing and hearing Him speak through His Word. But just because we use our eyes in that sense more than we use our ears doesn't mean we get it any better than they do. We need to, but I don't know that we do. So I want to suggest to you some questions that either you ask yourself or maybe go out a little more on an edge. And have a friend ask you that you have to look in the eye. Maybe ask these questions. What distracts you from listening to God? I mean, what is it? Maybe another question to ask is, is do you give attention to God? Do you take time to read His Word? The reality is, from surveys done, and if we're representative of an average group of population, only about one in seven of us read the Bible every day. And maybe a third of us, maybe more than that, look at it during the week. Maybe 60-70% of us do. But that's it. Do we ponder His Word? 
I mean, do I hear it and then do I ponder it? Do I think about it? In the words of Joshua 1.8, do I keep it in my mouth? Am I doing that? Is God's word still kind of rumbling around in my head? Because if I want a different outcome, I need a better response. And the response starts with me listening to God. We need to listen to God. Now, that's not all we need to do, but it needs to start there. Logically, that's where it starts. Okay, better response number two, though. Not only do we need to listen to God, we need to obey God. Okay, the same part of Scripture again. Let's read it again to kind of drive it home. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. Notice this, what does it say? Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Now I want you to zero in and kind of focus your attention on the words, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Really what I want you to notice is the word obeyed. The word that's translated obeyed, a lot of other places in the Old Testament, because this is a Hebrew word, is often translated as the word hear, as in I hear you or do you hear me. Okay, it's talking about an auditory sense, auditory sense. Do I hear this? So then you ask the question, well, if almost other places it's translated here, why is it translated as obey here? Why is it obey? Well, from the vantage point of the Old Testament, okay, if God is speaking, you probably are going to want to hear what He is saying. But much more than that, it's not just that. Much more than that. If God is speaking, okay, and notice twice in verse 12, the expression is used, the Lord their God. The Lord their God is a reminder that they are in a covenant relationship with God in which He is the to use the fancy word, He is the sovereign over them. He is the king. Okay? We, we elect presidents, so it gets a little messed up because we get rid of them if we don't like them. You can't get rid of your king. Okay? He's over them. So when your king speaks, you listen. But not only do you listen, when the king speaks, whatever he says to do, you obey. See, when the king speaks to you, he's speaking to you so that you will do the right thing. You will do what matters. The people of Haggai, the people Haggai is speaking to, they kind of understand. They're kind of getting it finally. That when God is telling them to consider their ways, to change their priorities, that is exactly what they should be doing. It's not a, hmm, well God, I'll take that under advisement that I should consider my ways. No, they recognize, I need to do this. See, better outcomes start happening when we respond to the voice of God and the way you respond to the voice of God is by obeying. When God speaks, you do. That's what they're starting to do. That's why they get a better outcome. Better response number three, they listen, they obey, and then better, outcome, better response number three that gets to the better outcome is they fear God. Okay, they fear God. All of verse 12. We'll finally cover the whole verse. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him 
and the people feared God. Now, the expression, fear the Lord or fear God, is a very big biblical expression. Okay, we, we actually took some time during the Greater Than series and talked about what does it mean to fear? What does the Bible mean by fear? Okay, now when we talked about it, what we kind of learned was it's, it's really, to use the expression, it's like it's a huge umbrella that has sort of a bunch of panels of things that are a part of that umbrella. Okay, when we say fear the Lord, we could mean, the idea could be the idea of be afraid of. It can mean that. It can also mean be in awe of. It can mean be controlled by in terms of the sovereign directing me. It can also mean to worship. I fear. That means I worship. Fear can also mean I trust. Fear can also mean biblically that I recognize I need this one I'm to fear. I desperately need God. Now, when it comes to verse 12 and that expression, the end of verse 12, feared the Lord, the scholars kind of have this debate going on about which nuance is Haggai trying to draw attention to. Which one is he trying to make? And as I sat and read their different arguments for, well, this nuance or this nuance, part of me went away and said, I'm not sure Haggai's trying to capture a certain nuance. I'm wondering really if what's going on in verse 12, if the point of verse 12 is, after so many years, hundreds of years of history, and in their own lives, a good chunk of their lives, of them not listening and not obeying God, they're finally at the point where they're rightly responding to God. They're starting to listen and they're starting to obey. They're starting in that sense to respond to God. When we talk about fearing God, in some ways we're talking about resetting my attitude or resetting the compass of my life and they're realizing how I should start to live now is fearing God. Think about it this way. If you rightly respond to God, part of what you're saying is you come to a point where you recognize I need God. And if I need God, I should trust God. And if I trust God, I, I should worship God. And I should be controlled by God. And I should be in awe of God. And in Matthew 10, 28, the Lord Jesus basically tells us there's only one thing we should be afraid of, one person we should be afraid of. And that is God. So there's all those elements can be a part of fearing God. That's part of the response they're, they're going for, that they're called to do. I don't think it's just one. I kind of think it's all of them. See, when God reveals Himself, when God speaks, you and I should rightly respond to Him. And one of the ways you can describe the right response to God is to fear God. Now, let's just kind of hit a pause button for a second and do an aside. Let's go to our 31 day of prayer guide. Okay, and right now, if you've been reading it this week, kind of starting on this last week, starting Wednesday through Tuesday, the focus is on loving God. So let's just say, does loving God and fearing God, do they have anything to do with each other? Because I'll be honest, loving God sounds warm and fuzzy and positive, and fearing God can have this tone of, ooh. So I don't know which side of the room wants to be the loving side and which side wants to be the fearing side. No one's going to vote, so I'll just assign it. Okay? But consider this. How many of you use the guide on Thursday? 
Okay? And I know you all have it memorized because Daryl wrote so well. But on Thursday, we read Deuteronomy chapter 10. And if you read particularly verse 12, you would notice in verse 12, it commanded us to both love God and fear God. Those aren't necessarily antithetical. Then, if you were to do this, and you can do this at home, you can do this right now, if you can write down these verses as quickly as I say them, but if you were to read Psalm chapter 5, verse 7, Psalm chapter 33, verse 18, Psalm chapter 103, verses 11 and 17, Psalm verse 118, verse 4, and Psalm 147, verse 11, you would see that there is a connection between God's steadfast love and us fearing God. So how do we synthesize? How do we put all of those things together? Well, fearing God is connected. We, the reason in those verses you're to fear God is because He's shown His steadfast love. And so how do you respond to God's steadfast love? You fear Him. But there's other verses that would say because of His steadfast love, you and I should love Him. Fearing God and loving God may not be a 100% overlap, folks but they're probably a 95% overlap. So when we talk about the right response to God and it says, fear God, the people feared Him, you could also say they loved God. Better outcomes flow when people rightly respond to God and when you rightly respond to God, it's fearing God and loving God. It's loving God and fearing God. So this isn't a divided issue. We're all together. So after the service, you need to hug somebody on the opposite side of the room. Okay? Because fear and love biblically go together. Now verse 12 describes a very different response than the people of Israel had done most of their history. Which raises the question, why did they respond differently? Probably also brings the issue would we, why would we want to respond like they did? Why would we want to do what they did? Why? Well, I think verses 13 to 15 offer us two reasons why. Two reasons that kind of led to them doing this differently. Okay, reason number one would simply be this. Because God is present. Okay, they responded differently because of the presence of God. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Okay, Part of the reason why they responded differently, why something was changed in their lives, is tied to the fact that God declared, hey, I am present with them. Now, when it says God is present with them, it doesn't mean that, that God's kind of like a, a big brother that's way off in the distance at the park, just kind of keeping an eye on you, looking at you every once in a while. The idea is implied is God is very present. He's present to be with you. I think one of the amazing truths of life is that God wants to be with us, and He wants us to be with Him. And that is something that has been true through all of human history. God wants us to be with Him. He wants us. He wants to be with us. He wants us to be with Him. Now, why does God want that? Well, God knows that life will not work very well for us if we try to operate in life without God. Adam and Eve were the first people 
to try and live without God. Okay, they, they thought, hey, let's try this. You know, they didn't, the Bible doesn't say, let's try this experiment. They just kind of did it. And the outcome they experienced and the outcome they passed down that all of us get to experience is not exactly what I would call good. Okay? Because they tried to live without God, all kinds of things like blame, like guilt, like shame, like death, all of those became a part of life because they ignored God. Because they tried to operate without God. Kind of, ah, we don't care about God, we're going to go do our own thing. Part of the good news of the Bible is that God still, even though we ignored Him, God wants to give us His presence. The solution to the biggest need in your life is the presence of God. Okay, That is what Christmas and the cross declare. That we need God to be present. I want you to think with me about the cross just for a second through the words of Isaiah and Isaiah 53 and the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3. Okay, So we need to understand that the cross became a necessity. The reason we have the cross is because we wanted to operate without God. We thought, we're just going to go do our own thing. So Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, it's telling us some factual things about us. We turned to our own way. We wanted to do our own thing. Implied in that is we then created a problem. But the problem God didn't put on us, he put on God's Son. Okay, he put on his son. You say, why did he do that? Well, 1 Peter 3.18 tells us what? For Christ also suffered for sin, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It wasn't his problem. It was ours. But God put it on him. Why? What does the next part of the verse tell us? That he might, what? Bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, God knew that you and I couldn't pay our own penalty. But the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, could. He could actually pay our penalty. So when He goes to the cross and He dies for us and He rises again, He does that so that we can be brought to God. So that we who walked away from God, separated ourselves, can now be with God. How have you responded to that? Have you responded to that? If that's what He's done, if that's what really Christmas is about, if that's what the cross is about, if that's what the resurrection is about, have you responded to that? Now, you can respond a lot of ways to that. But the right response to that would be to turn from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Have you done that? Okay, that's not insignificant. God did all of that to bring you to be in relationship with Him. Because again, the solution to the biggest need in your life is the presence of God. You need that relationship. And to go from there, then back to Haggai 1.12, in that relationship, to then respond to God by listening 
by obeying, by fearing. But not only that, is when you respond that way, to go back to verse 13, when you respond that way to God, verse 13 is telling us you can be assured of something. You can be assured that God is present. And the amazing thing is, is if God is present, you are going to receive some incredible things from God. You're going to receive confidence and support. I love the words of Isaiah 41. Let me just read one of the verses we read. Let me just read verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why listen? Why obey? Why fear? Well, to be very pragmatic because of what God gives us. He gives us Himself and He gives us His resources. Reason number two, why would I want to rightly respond to God? Because God stirs us to contribute. The active presence of God not only gives us confidence and support, but can actually lead us to be empowered to accomplish things of significance in the plan of God. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Haggai 1. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Okay, When God is present in our lives, Okay, he's in part present, these verses are telling us, to move in our lives. Okay, he stirred the people to work. Now the idea of stirred is basically these people had been asleep. In their case, they'd been asleep for 16 years and he woke them up and they're ready to go. They can all of a sudden do things. They got that needed rest, so to speak. Now they can go. Okay, the temple, in the plan of God, God had decreed the temple needed to be done. Back in 538 B.C., he had stirred the life of the king of Persia, Cyrus, in 538 B.C. to get the thing started. And then it stopped. Now, it stopped in 516 B.C. Now, 16 years later, he is stirring the people. He is getting them ready to go. Please understand what verse 14, I think, is inferring to us. When you listen to God, when you obey God, when you fear God, you position yourself. You are now in a place in life where you are ready to receive God's supernatural stirring in you to act. Okay, They had not done anything for 16 years. But now they start to respond rightly and all of a sudden they are ready to go. Please know this. God wants you to be a contributor. That is a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We want to do things. But sin impairs our ability to contribute. 
for us to contribute, we need to understand that production out of us isn't about us getting the energy and going. Production is going to be preceded by a personal connection with God. And that connection will involve us responding properly to God's correction and to God's conviction. Strong words are not easy to receive. But strong words are an incredible gift. God's strong words are His gift. Through the words God delivered in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, God, in essence, was inviting the people to be a part of His unfolding plan, joining Him in what He was doing. In His strong words, He was offering them the gift of a better life. He was offering them a life where they make a contribution instead of being focused on themselves. But the only way they could receive the gift The only way to benefit from what God was offering was they needed to respond the right way. Folks, I believe God is inviting each of us to a life of contribution. He wants us to be a part of the unfolding of His plan. But for us to receive that life, we must respond properly to His strong words. We must listen to Him. We we must obey Him. We must fear Him. Now I'm not saying that's the only response. There's a lot of ways you could respond to God's strong words. But those responses are the only ones that are going to lead to a better outcome. So then that brings us to the question. What are you doing with God's gift of strong words? When God calls you to consider your ways, are you listening? Are you obeying? Are you fearing? Your response will impact the outcome of your life. Now is the appointed time to respond properly. Let's pray. Father, You are the one who is sovereign and supreme. We don't always live like that's the truth. But just because we don't live that way doesn't change the fact it is true. Father, I would pray as we come in that sense into Your presence this morning, we'd hear we'd listen. And Lord, that that would move us to obey. That would move us to fear. Lord, You are giving us incredible gifts. I pray we would respond rightly. I pray we would receive all that You have for us. It is not easy to hear strong words. But thank you. In them is an incredible gift. May we receive everything you have for us in Christ. That will be for our good. But even more, it will be for your glory. And we thank you for that. In the very precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.